Good afternoon and welcome everybody. I'm uh, delighted to present to you our speaker today, Dr. Guy Burton, who is currently a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics Middle East Center and adjunct professor at Vesalius College in Brussels. Uh, Dr. Burton's research interests involve the politics and international relations of the Middle East and specifically that the role of emerging outside powers uh, in, uh, in the conflict. He is currently studying the role of China and its response towards conflict in the region. The title of his talk today is also the title of his recently published book, Rising Powers and the Arab-Israeli Conflict Since 1947. Professor Burton, thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you, for, and thank you for so many people showing up, because normally I don't get this many number of people, so I really appreciate it. Um, it makes, it makes a tr coming, at, coming over to Oxford so much, more worth, much worthwhile. Um, so I've, got, I've been told, you know, that normally these things run for about 35 minutes or so, so I'm just going to give you sort of the bare bones of the, of, of the, of the, of the book itself. Um, which will give, you, which is really a, a historical account, but trying to sort of sit, fit, situate, or fix it into sort of the theoretical frameworks that are associated with international relations and conflict management. Um, so I won't probably won't get into the detail of individual country cases here, but I'm certainly willing to talk about that, you know, after the after after my sort of allotted time is up, because it is an interesting and and, and you know interesting uh, account of each of these countries that that I've been looking at. Um, so we. We talk about the rising powers, and really, uh, the, what, when I talk about rising powers, I'm talking about five in particular, the so-called BRICS countries, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And um, just to sort of give you a little bit of an outline of what I'm going to be talking about, I want to start first by saying a little bit about what brought me to, to, to study this particular subject, because, you know, when you go along to, you know, conferences and, and, and assemblies on Middle Eastern studies, it's a little bit out there when you start saying you want to talk about China or India. Um, but I hope, hopefully, it will, you know, it will start to become more sort of mainstream. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of sort of the, my thinking my, of what is a rising power, as well as what do we mean by conflict management, because then I want to, by doing that, then I want to sort of talk, you know, basically summarize effectively about 70 years worth of, of history of these different countries in relation to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and then maybe sort of towards the end, points, point towards where we might go from here, sort of where are the sort of the, the gaps that could, be could potentially be developed, studied further. I see a number of students here, so you know, this is a potential, potential opportunity for you to think about your dissertations. So, um, so just to sort of say a little bit about you know, what brought me to this. Um, a number of years back, I was based in at Beers 8 University, where I taught, where I worked at the Center for Development Studies, uh, and we were very much interested in the the role of the aid industry. We were interested in what did development mean for Palestine and for Palestinians, and so I was very much looking at things from that particular perspective. During the course of that, I had the opportunity to look sideways and see other areas that were of interest, and it was around the time that I first arrived, you know, to work in Palestine um, in, t in February 2010 that President Lula, then President Lula of Brazil had just made his second visit to the region. He had been fated in the streets of Ramallah. They had, they had created, they'd, they'd, um, created a new road, put a new road up called you know, uh, uh, Brazil Road, which was right next to the Makata. So you know, there was a lot of sort of in interest and attention at the time. So what, what does this all mean? And, you know, actually, I should confess that I started off as a Latin Americanist and comparativist myself. Um, so when I came to, 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 to Palestine, I was very intrigued to find that, you know, 
Lula had been sort of running around all over the place. So that sort of prompted me to start looking. Um, I started looking at the role of, of Brazil, and at the time, you know, Venezuela under Chavez was very active, especially in the context of the 2008-9 uh, Gaza, Gaza war. So I started looking at these, these, these countries on the side, and that sort of led me to looking at the BRICS as a group, both individually as well as collectively. It was also a time around then that people were thinking, oh, the BRICS are a new, doing a, they offer a new way of thinking about po global politics. So what does this mean for contact, you know, conflicts like the Arab-Israeli conflict? Um, maybe that's changed a little bit since, especially given sort of the economic crises that have happened in Brazil uh, and the, the lower, lower growth rates in South, South Africa. But I think it's important to, to bear in mind that there was this interest, but very much a lot of the international relations of the Arab-Israeli conflict, especially in the last 20 odd years, has been very much framed around the role of the United States, the Europeans. So I was interested in seeing who else is involved in all of this. Um, I also think it's important to, to, to give you this sort of background because it, mean, it, it also shows you the perspective from which I was working. I was primarily based living and working you know, amongst Palestinians, so I, I'm perhaps a little bit stronger and more familiar on, sort of this, on, the, the, on the agenda and the interests on that side. Um, it's also important to know those sort of things because I know that this, is a particularly, this can sometimes be quite a polemical conflict and people have their particular positions and views. So it's useful to set those out. I mean, we talk about objective scholarship, but I think uh, people bring their own interests into this particular conflict. And hopefully what I'm going to talk is more about the role of these international powers rather than the conflict itself, but we can discuss that as well afterwards if, 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 if you wish. Also, it's important to say something about the nature of the conflict, um, because a lot of the frame, framing around the conflict, especially the use of the Oslo peace process, is that of sort of two relatively equal uh, equidistant parties, you know, Israel and Israel on one side and the PLO on the other, and yet, you know, there is a critique to that which says that this is not a balanced conflict. This is not two two powers that the two groups that are coming to the coming to the table in in an equal position. Uh, we're talking about a situation in which Israel has significantly greater you know, material resources. And we're talking about, if, you, if you're familiar with Jeff Halper's work on the matrix of control, in which he talks about sort of the, the whole infrastructure that has been built up in the context of the West Bank and, 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 and Gaza, that this is an imbalanced relationship. So it's important to bear that in mind when, list, when, when, when uh, considering sort of the rhetoric that goes on with regards to the emerging powers and their position. So setting that out, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what are rising powers and, and the BRICS. And broadly, I mean, if you think about, in, if you look at the international relations, I mean, often there's a, most focus is, intro, is, is, is on that of great powers and superpowers. So what about these other powers that sort of are in between these so-called middle powers or regional powers, or in the context of what I'm using here, rising powers? Um, Broadly, there seem to be about you know three different ways we can define them. One is to look at them in terms of their their you know sort of in an objective way, in terms of their resources, um, in terms of sort of the size of the economy, their size of the population, uh, the military resources that they have. Uh, another way is to look at them in a subjective way, and I think that's quite what's quite important in, th in thinking about the role of rising powers in the in the case of this conflict. How are they perceived by others? Because a lot of this is about you know. I want to be seen to be doing something or not doing something, but it's important how others perceive me. It's a, I can do something myself, but I want to know how others see me. And that brings me to the third way that you can think about uh, rising powers, that of their behavioral statecraft. So what kind of things do they actually do? 
And broadly, there are sort of two types of behavior. I mean, I'm going to be quite crude here, but between these two ends of the spectrum, there is what we might consider those who are sort of good international citizens wanting to uphold the international institutions and the structure of the international system in which they find them. And then there are those which we might call spoilers or challenges to that, to that system. I mean, we can think about you know, certain, you know, some, some obvious examples. I, I alluded to, you know, to Chavez in Venezuela. You know, back in the, uh, when he was alive, you know, he was very much seen as sort of you know, challenging the, the established order of things in, in Latin America, whereas you know, Lula was never really doing that. So he was kind of seen more as a sort of international good citizen, or at least that was the way that they, they framed themselves. Now, of course, it's not as crude as that. You know, uh, actors can sort of swing back and forth to, with it between these two, 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 two poles. Um, but it's useful to have that as a sort of a, a framework, framework to think about. Now, secondly, the other thing we can think about in terms of, of, of rising powers is their position in relation to the international system, not just their behavior, but you know, their stance. And so if, we, the, if you go back and look at the literature on middle powers from sort of soon after the Second World War, you see, the, you see a lot of discussion about countries like Australia and Canada who recognized and associated themselves with the Western order, uh, supported the international systems that have been set up, the Bretton Woods system, the UN system. And, when, and actually, inc interestingly enough, now there's a bit of a debate going on, you know, regarding for in the case of Canada, which has always portrayed itself as, you know, upholding these upholding the international system as being sort of challenged by what's been by some of its relations with with regard to China. Um, so there is the, those established bodies. But then there is and this is where I think the interest in the BRICS came about those the emerging sort of non-traditional um, actors who people said, do they really see themselves as part of the international system? Or are they challenging it? The BRICS themselves were just a sort of provide some context to those who uh, don't know it it was never a, it was never a, a a name that they took on themselves it was actually ident it was um, Gold, uh, Jim, Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs, who first wrote about them in the, in, an eco as in the context of economic development and growth. In about 2001, he, was he wanted to write about where are these emerging markets, not powers, but emerging markets coming from. And he pointed to four, uh, neatly, basically Brazil, Russia, India, and China, as the brick. Um, it's interesting that from about 2008, Around the time of the financial crisis, you start to see these these actors, the the leaderships of these countries, starting to take ownership of that uh, that phrase, that term, and they started to organise their own meetings. Initially, on the side of the UN um, General Assembly meetings in September, and then subsequently, from about 2009, they started to organise um, regular annual meetings where they would sit down and and try to put forward sort of their vision of what the world order should look like. Initially, that was primarily about the, the global economy. It was about, and I think the most substantive ex um, output outcomes that have come from, from the BRICS, uh, South Africa joined in 2011, was, but the, the most substantive kind of outputs we've seen from that is the establishment of a contingency reserve fund uh, to, to factor in sort of you know, financial difficulties and also the establishment of a new development bank, both of those coming out in 2014. But in terms of anything more, su more substantive in terms of sharing or pooling sovereignty, we haven't seen that. And that sort of also echoes the fact that these countries, although they can work collaboratively on some things, there are, they have internal tensions and conflicts between them. Say, for example, China and India on one hand, China and, the, and Russia and you know, the predecessors on the other. So it's... 
a minimal amount of work that they can do. So then this raises the question, so why am I looking at you know, these, these particular countries you know, from 1947? Uh, why particularly look at um, you know, the, the Arab-Israeli conflict and, and, in, and in, in the case of uh, you know, the, the BRICS, which we can do from a collective, but why, why bring it back to 1947? And this actually brings something about the debate that goes on um, as to when did the conflict start. I mean, from, often when, uh, there's, there's been a sort of a, I guess for some on the Israeli left, there's a sort of a talk about, well, if we, you know, we, we talk about 1967 as the point at which things are, are, the, are the starting point for this conflict, but actually from a Palestinian perspective, it starts from 1947. And so I wanted to try and situate where these countries sit, have sit and, and position themselves in relation to the conflict since that period. Also, 1947 is the period at which the conflict became internationalized. It was put forward to the United Nations, um, you know, for debate and discussion as under under the partition plan. So I think for the, from those from that perspective, it makes sense to talk about 1947 as 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 the moment at which the the conflict became internationalized and what is the role of these different countries uh, in relation to that. Yes, I also look in the book, um, you know, at, at what the BRICS themselves have been saying since they started to organize themselves collectively. But um, it's also quite useful to look at what they were saying uh, individually as well. And it also gives us sort of some insights into different sort of uh, different uh, voices from different parts of the world. Because if we think about, you know, um, the, so the Russia and its predecessor, the Soviet Union, sort of as, as one of the leading powers on, in the communist world as opposed to the China, which also sometimes identified with the global south, which is also where you would find, um, you know, Brazil and India, you get these different voices that, that emerge. Right, so talking a little, having talked about the, ri the rising powers, let's say a little bit about the nature of conflict and conflict management. Um, I've summarized here in the, in the table above um, some, this distinction between, on the one hand, conservative, conservative peace and liberal peace. This is something that has you know, been drawn up by those who, are, who, st who work in the peace studies field. Um, very, very, very simply, the distinction between conservative peace and liberal peace. Conservative peace is that where we sort of see an absence of violence. So no, 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 no fighting, no violence then we've got peace. But those more critical views from the peace studies community have said, well, just because there's no, no violence doesn't mean that there is no conflict. You know, the, the conflict has you know, deeper roots and that might actually require doing more than just uh, removing physical violence. It might, means actually building peace. It means you know, getting involved in, in various activities that might involve uh, development assistance or you know, incorporation of particular communities, you know, reducing discrimination and marginalization as a way to resolve you know, the potential for conflict. So putting it at either end, we can see there's this distinction between you know, different forms of peace, this conservative versus liberal. Um, and with it, I suggest that there is this, uh, the, the type of conflict management processes and practices can be those between broadly active versus passive. So if we're just looking to try and prevent violence from breaking out, that's somewhat passive approach to, uh, to, 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 to conflict management. Whereas if we want to engage in, a, in, in resolving the, you know, sort of the underlying tensions and causes of that conflict, that's a much more active approach. But also along with that comes the idea that in some cases, you know, active conflict management may be more coercive. It means if we think, if we think about peacekeeping, for example, peacekeeping is simply keeping two sides apart. Um, but 
if we're talking about peace building, it might mean actually going into the community and actually addressing some of the different, you know, the tensions that exist there. That might actually require, you know, taking sides. Um, it therefore, it's a, it can be a potentially more coercive approach. And this is one of the things that I sort of try to break down in terms of the different ways that we can, you can sort of uh, uh, analyze conflict management in the context of international relations. Um, but from the and I've broken it down from sort of the political and diplomatic through to the strategic, legal, and so social economic. Um, now, the main argument I'm going to take is that, and this is sort of where it comes, I come back to inter, in sort of international relations, is that rising powers, we would tend to think that rising powers you know, are going to be more likely to act and perhaps take a more active role where there is space for them to do so. So if we think about an international system where there is, you know, more competition there is, or, or more space, there's going to be more opportunity for these type of actions to take place, these type of actors to, to, to operate. Um, on the other hand, where the international system is more closed, there's, more, there's fewer opportunities for rising powers to uh, express themselves, to, carry, you know, to pursue these type, of, these type of conflict management activities. Um, so this is a sort of the main argument that was put at the, at the front of the book. Now, the rest of the book then goes through studying this, but from a historical perspective. So it's broken down into a number of chapters. I look at the conflict and these different countries' response to this from 1947 to 67, then from 1967 to 93, then from 93 to 2000, and then after the Second, second Intifada. And also, it's also useful to bear in mind sort of very broadly the nature of the conflict itself. And from the first period, 47 to 67, it's, it can probably be characterized more as a conflict between states, right? The, the Palestinian dimension of the conflict is, is somewhat reduced. It's overshadowed by the role of the actors that go to war with Israel in 1947-48. But after 1967, we see, that we see sort of the, the rise of the Palestinian-ness of the conflict and sort of, the, in effect, the downgrading of the other states in relation to the conflict. Um, it's also in that period, I think what's, what's interesting is that 1967 is also the moment at which we have Resolution 242, the framework on which subsequent negotiations are built. Mm -hmm. and it's, but it's also a very ambiguous, um, you know, ambiguous resolution. It's, it says, you know, is, it never actually says what should go first. It talks about Israeli withdrawal from, 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 from occupied territory and, you know, sort of a, and, and peace, uh, peace agreement. But it doesn't talk about which goes first. It's very, it's very, for the, it had to be ambiguous for it to pass in, uh, in November 1967 in the, in the UN Security Council. But it's also created problems because how do we move the, the negotiations on? Now, with 1947, so 1947 to 67 is this period in which we sort of pri prioritize, I guess, the state-to-state -state interactions. 1967 to... 93, we see the rise of sort of the Palestinians and the PLO as sort of the primary actor in, 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 the, in, the, in the conflict. The third chapter, which I'm, which I'm talking about, 93 to 2000, obviously is the, sort of the high point of the Oslo process. And then from the second intifada onwards, we sort of have effectively seen sort of a, well, the, the, the process has effectively collapsed. It's not, it's, not, it's not developed any further. However, what is interesting and what I sort of try to draw out in the chapter is the emergence of a different form of engagement, and it's that of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement after 2005. And there you have a different kind of form of engagement. There you have 
the emergence of this kind of grassroots civil society movement that's, that has quite a lot of consensus in, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian, in the Palestinian uh, community, trying to influence governments but on a transnational basis. So you see this kind of the, the building of transnational relationships uh, between civil society groups in, in, in the Palestinian community with you know, civil society groups and solidarity groups you know, outside as a form of way to try and sort of put pressure. So the, almost a third way, third, third sort of um, pattern. Now, thinking about all of this, I'm sorry, this is where, this is where I sort of broken it down by, by chapter. Broadly, what we see, I, th I mean, I would possibly argue that in this earlier period of 47 to 67, you know, you can see examples of both active and passive conflict management at work. Um, certainly, you know, sort of attempts to try and sort of actually resolve the conflict. Like, because it's seen as sort of a state-based conflict, partition will be the solution here. And pretty much most of, the, most of, the, uh, most of these uh, states you know, sign up to that. Um, we also see attempts at sort of peacekeeping. I mean, obviously, with hindsight, we look at peacekeeping now and say, OK, it's limited. It's not going to solve uh, you know, the causes of conflict. But you know, this is us looking, looking at it today. Whereas in the, in the period of 47 to 67, you know, peacekeeping could have been seen as a way to actively resolve, um, resolve, resol resolve the conflict. And we have the Brazilians and the Indians both contributing to peacekeeping in the, in the, in the Suez, in the, in the Sinai area, um, prior to the 1967 war. We also see, you know, well, and this is where it might, uh, whereas what we find in the 1967 to 93, and actually subsequently after, we see much less active uh, conflict management. And I guess my argument to that, the, the reason why I would suggest this is because just as the point I made about if the international environment is more open, we would expect to see more, uh, more efforts by rising powers to influence the, pro the, the process. And if the international system is more closed, then there's less opportunities. I would argue that actually in this period, in the Cold War period from 47 to 93, we do have space for, um, you know, for, for these rising powers to pursue different approaches. Uh, this is, it's not, a, it's not a simple, you know, United States versus Soviet Union conflict that's going on there. There is, with the context of, you know, detente and the emergence of the third world um, and non-alignment, I think there is space for these, some of these actors to try and pursue alternative routes. By contrast, the end of the Cold War is the high point of American power, it's the and it's the, the moment of unipolarity. There's really very little space for, um, inter for, for other actors to become involved in the peace process. So broadly, what we find from, you know, with, with the signing of the Oslo Agreement is all of these countries pretty much agreeing with the, with the rhetoric and, agree and, and, and saying in public we support the process. So then what about after, two, after, you know, after 2000, 2005, after the Second World War, sorry, the so second intifada and the um, the emergence of the boycott divestment sanctions movement. There, I think it's more interesting. Um, we find with the you know the, there is there is still this rhetorical support for the Oslo peace process. You'll find that all five of these countries talk about the importance of both sides getting behind the table and um, resolving their their differences through negotiations. But what we've also seen is the emergence of the BDS movement. How has that played out in relation to um, these, these BRICS countries? What is interesting, I think, is when that the, BRIC, that the BDS prim initially 
focused a lot of its attention and work on, you know, civil society movements and solidarity groups in the West, in North America, in Europe, because that's primarily had a lot of that. That's where there's been a lot of interaction con points of contact um, with Israel. So when I was doing this work and asking BD, a BDS campaigner, what is the, you know, sort of what is the status of, of BDS's engagement, interaction with countries, you know, com with civil society groups in the BRICS countries, it was more of an afterthought. And what you find is that actually there's greater sympathy in the more democratic countries. So countries that have a dem democratic um, process like Brazil and India and South Africa, as opposed to in you know, countries like China and Russia, where the space for independent civil society is a lot more restricted. Um, what, at the same time, of course, you find that you know, the BDS, which has been building these kind of ties with, uh, with, with, with different groups in Brazil, India, and, and South Africa, it's been doing it primarily with sort of politically left groups, tra tra trade union type movements, social and, and solidarity groups. So in a way, it's, it has much more sympathy and it's more inclined to be heard um, when, it, it, when, it, when it's engaged with sort of sub-national actors that are of, of its ilk. So you see a number of uh, ach achievements, at least from the BDS's perspective, in the cancellation of contracts um, at, at state level in Brazil and also in India, but this is primarily by sort of state governments that are run by the left. And of course, South Africa as well is, you know, stands out significantly in the context of BDS because it is also sort of the model and the framework for, for apartheid on which, you know, the BDS movement has, has built itself. So, there is a, so there's a much you know, closer link and closer tie um, between BDS and, and South Africa than there is with these other two, you know, BRICS countries, which, which might be considered democratic. Um, so in, so where that sort of brings me very brief. It's a very sort of sweeping, you know, observation about you know the, the 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 periods that I'm looking at. I'm happy to talk in more detail about you know individual countries if you're interested in that. But in terms of thinking about sort of where, okay, so so conclusions and where do we go from here? And I would just break it down by, I think the first point to make that. Um, in, there's, there's the earlier period and the later period. And the earlier period, as I said, um, was one when, when, we, when we think about the Cold War, we tend to think of it as quite closed. But actually, there was space and opportunity for, you know, the role of other outside, outside non-US, non-Soviet actors to, to become more and more involved. Um, there was competition as well going on between some of these actors. So, you know, there is the Sino-Soviet tensions, which meant that the Chinese were, you know, actively trying to cultivate ties with the PLO as a way of sort of, you know, pushing the Soviets to one side and, and, and using them for as a way, as, as a tool for, you know, claiming leadership of, 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 of the communist or the national liberation world. Um, Whereas the later period, I think after 1967, you know, the, the nature of the conflict becomes sort of confined to um, historic Palestine. So the mandatory territorial space of Palestine, um, it means it's also a period in which effectively the Americans become increasingly dominant initially in the 1970s. And we see that most notably with the Camp David talks, which pushes the Soviets out of the way. The Soviets, who's, who, are what, who are Egypt's main sponsor, suddenly lose the Egyptians and Egypt sort of enters the American orbit. I think that's all, that's sort of all that points to the fact that when it comes to the Oslo process after, you know, from, the, from, from, the, from the early 90s onwards, there is no sort of peer to the Americans. And in that respect, none of these 
BRICS powers seeks to, to challenge that. And it's also, a, 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 you know, it can very much be based on a cost-benefit analysis. Do you really want to, you know, to, to, to challenge the American position, um, take over mediation, you know, control of the, of the peace process and have it fail? Because that, you know, it would be an uncomfortable place to be. Um, I think also that's, that's, that's also quite noticeable that when you look today um, since 2005, you know, the number of times that BRICS countries have sort of put themselves forward as potential mediators. Under Lula, he often said, I'm willing to, to mediate. Um, Russia, including under Putin, has often put himself forward as a potential, you know, unifier of Palestinian uh, in internal differences. So back, uh, back in 2006, after Hamas won the legislative elections, he said, I'm willing to talk to Hamas, just as, you know, I mean, just as well, the, at the same time that people were concerned that Hamas was, a, a, was, a, was, was considered to be a terrorist organization. More recently, in the last couple of weeks, in, in, the, in the last month, Putin has talked about, you know, putting Russia forward as a broker for talks between Fatah and Hamas to try and resolve uh, this, the, di the national differences that exist in the Palestinian national movement. Um, but a lot of this is rhetoric. It's not really followed up by anything. And we see this as well in the Chinese position as well. 2013, the Chinese put forward uh, a four-point plan. Say, and, it, and they received quite a bit of coverage at the time about trying to say, but again, it was very, very much following the same, um, same language of, of the Oslo peace process of saying, we can mediate, we're willing to bring the Israelis and Palestinians together. Um, but they didn't follow through on that. And that 2013 proposal was then you know, overshadowed by, if everyone remembers this, John Kerry's attempt at shuttle diplomacy for about nine, 10 months, which fell apart, collapsed. Um, the Chinese revisited it again in 2017. So in July, um, they went in the space of about a month, you had Netanyahu in, in Beijing, followed by Mahmoud Abbas. And of course, both times, the Chinese said, we're willing to, you know, to be here, we're willing to sort of broker talks, uh, but they didn't push forward. And everyone kind of forgot about this until December. So December 2017, the Chinese hosted a seminar between a group of, of, of delegations, one from the Israeli Knesset, actually led by the Knesset, the head of um, the, the speaker of the Knesset, and also some representatives from the PLO. This happened, I think, two, two or three days just before Christmas, and it was just about a week or so after the Americans had said they were moving the embassy to Jerusalem. So this, times were not propitious, propitious for this. But at the same time, what was really striking is that even though they, they found it very difficult, the Chinese, to get the two sides to even agree a non-binding resolution. So eventually they managed to broker a, 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 some kind of communique, but they've not followed up on that since. And I think this also highlights the, you know, sort of the, the, the tensions at work here, because on the one hand, you know, it's actually a really difficult conflict to actually make any meaningful headway. I mean, the fact that the Americans haven't been able to do much over the last few years highlights that. So what you find, though, but what's really interesting is to see how the BRICS, both individually and collectively, have critiqued and challenged the Americans and said, you're not, you know, this, the we need to expand and open up this, this, this conflict to uh, international negotiation, mediation. We're willing to be sponsors. But at the same time, when it comes to, you know, push comes to shovel, they're very wary about actually becoming actively uh, involved in that process. So that's 
sort of the, the essence of things. But the question is then, where do we go from here? And I mean, you can probably break this up into sort of two different, two different ways. So if you're thinking about this from a policymaking point of view, obviously the question is, you know, do we keep Oslo? Do we keep this, this, this peace process as the model for, for future negotiations? Or do we try and find something different? And where, where does, and, and does what, what leverage do BRICS countries actually have in trying to get these parties behind the table again? Um, you might ask, well, if you, you know, China with its current Belt and Road proposals and initiatives in the, in, the, in primarily in Central Asia, but increasingly reaching the Middle East, what influence, what leverage can the Chinese make by using their Belt and Road projects in Israel and the Pal and, and with the Palestinians as a way of incentivizing negotiations? My argument to that is probably unlikely because the Chinese tend to say that we like to not interfere in internal affairs. But but the nature of, of setting up a project, of signing a contract with, with, with a business to do work in, in a country is going to necess necessitate taking a side. Um, from the Russian perspective, I mean, what's been interesting is, you know, from, from its position in Syria, where it's obviously had influence over the last few years, it's been striking to see how much how it's tried to leverage that influence in relation to Israel in order to sort of coordinate action over Syria, but also in the wider Middle East. So at the moment, we talk about, you know, Putin's efforts in relation to the conflict as more as, as theater. But is there a, is there a way, is there a scope for him to actually leverage his position in the Middle East into something more substantive? Um, and then in the case of sort of Brazil and South Africa, I mean, we have... Uh, Jewish communities are these communities that could be influenced in relation to the, the conflict. I think that's one of the things that I think is missing. And, I, and now I point to where do we go in terms of scholarship? Um, I think one of the, limit, the limitations of, this, of, of, of the work so far that I've done is that I've primarily sort of focused on sort of the high level sort of state-to-state -state interactions. I think what might be quite interesting, and this, is, this could be potential future work, is to look at the nature and role of, you know, um, solidarity groups or sort of Jewish and Arab populations in some of these countries and the, inter and the, and the impact that they may or may not have in relation to um, uh, the, the, the politics of, of, of the conflict. So one of the things I found quite striking is that when I was interviewing for this book, when I asked the, the, the dip, the Israeli, one of the Israeli diplomats who were responsible for Latin American affairs, you know, what they thought about sort of Lula's influence and involvement in all of this, they said, well, one thing about Lula is that he thinks that, you know, yes, he comes from a trade union background, he's, so he's used to sort of, you know, brokering agreements between sort of employers and, and, and employees, he sort of said he sees this as sort of a way of just getting people into the room together and saying, yeah, you know, I've had we've, in Brazil, we've got experience of we've got Jewish Brazilians and Arab Brazilians, so we can get them together and we can, you know, they can they can resolve the differences. But as the diplomat said to me, this is not at, what's what's missing from that is that actually this is, you know, there is something that holds those Jewish Brazilian and Arab Brazilian populations together. Their Brazilianness, Brazilianness. There isn't this in this particular conflict, and he's missing that. So that does sort of raise this interesting question about sort of what is the role of these diaspora groups in relation to the conflict, um, which I think would be quite interesting to explore, and especially in the in the in, in the case of of of, of Israel. Um, 
I also think, you know, in terms of sort of other work that could potentially be done in relation to this, is not to just limit this to, to these five countries, these BRICS countries. There are other middle, middle powers out there that could, could certainly be uh, examined and explored. And I'm also doing, that, doing this myself. One of the things, that, one of the papers that I'm, I'm now working on, and I should be presenting at Brismas in, in a, at, the, at the Middle East Studies Conference in a few months' time, is on the role of Muslim-majority sorry, governments from Muslim-majority countries in relation to the Middle East, um, primarily Malaysia and Indonesia. I'm quite interested in their interaction and engagement with, the middle, with, the, with middle East politics more generally, but also specifically that of Israel-Palestine, because Israel-Palestine maintains a very highly symbolic uh, dimension and element to this. So how much of this sort of plays out in terms of their domestic politics, but also in their foreign policy? Um, and I think also, finally, you know, there is the, the the role of the BDS in all of this. I've pointed to that. This is kind of a new, uh, newish sort of element of civil society, you know, relations on foreign policy, uh, transnational groups' activities and their impact on foreign policy. Certainly, I think there's an, much more scope to do work there. The role of the BDS, not just in the most obvious places that we've that that's tends tends to be looked at in North America and Europe, but in these other parts of the world that have you know significant you know Israeli markets um, and significant you know sympathy or solidarity with with the Palestinians. And so, I will probably leave it there. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm.